One thing hasn't changed with buyers. Buyers don't want you to come and solve the problems they're telling you. They actually want you to solve the problems they don't know they have. Yeah. That's one of the big differences between using information at your fingertips as well. And it's a great way to open conversations. And it may not be that first conversation that gets you in the door, but if you take an angle where you've worked something out that can fix something for them that's really, really relevant and you can show the tangible benefits of that, you're more likely to be remembered and probably more likely to be spoken to. So for me, the, the stand out now as a salesperson actually isn't as hard as it used to be. It's actually quite easy. Welcome to the State of Sales Enablement Podcast with your host, Felix Kruger. Insights and actionable advice from B2B marketing and sales experts that share what it takes to achieve sales enablement excellence. Our guest in this week's episode is a household name in the APAC region. Over the last 20 years, he has led go-to-market teams of brands such as Hewlett Packard, Accenture, Salesforce, SAP, Microsoft, and Zendesk. He knows what it takes to be strategic about scaling revenue, and I can't wait to share his insights with you. Please welcome BAC Partners Director and Head of Growth, Rod Moynihan. Rod, thank you so much for joining the show today. Um, it's great to have you on. Pleasure to be here, Felix. Always great to talk about something I'm extremely passionate about. Rod, you are a quite well-known senior leader in the Australian market. You've occupied a lot of commercial leaderships across a lot of great brands. Talk us through your career journey so far and what do you do now? Yeah, there have been some great organizations I've worked with, and it's certainly helped me build up, I guess, the knowledge and competencies that I have today, but still learning. So I'll start with what I'm doing today after 23-odd years of leading software companies and transitioning through the on-premise to the cloud-orientated world we live in today. I made the step across into partner world. So I'm now a company director and leading an organization called BAC, which is a specialist organization around bringing technology to life for organizations who are looking at creating better connected customer and employee experiences. Prior to that, I've, as I said, I've led organizations through the traditional on-premise world, starting my life in accounting products and finance products and helping deliver those, working all the way through to large ERP programs of work, both working with direct sales teams and, and indirect channels, and then made the transition in the kind of mid-2000s into the SaaS world, and that's where I spent the majority of my life, except for a stint in a services organization where I built out their uh, capability for go-to-market into cloud. But yeah, that's extensively me, B2B sales, running B2B software as a service companies. Yeah, awesome. I mean, you're obviously still really well connected, like you're you're part of the generation of uh, senior leaders that are still in charge in most organizations that you've worked across, and you would have quite a good idea of what's happening in the sales world. What's your impression of the impact COVID-19 has had on technology sales in Australia? Yeah, well, I think if we go back to late 2019, when COVID started to become something relevant and we we're readying it ourselves for it to hit the shores, in 2020, I, I think if you looked at what the sh stock market did to tech stocks, we would have assumed that it would have had an equal implication on technology sales. But while stocks sunk quite dramatically, they came back quickly on the, the emphasis that organizations were then having to put into distance selling, digital selling, and then also creating uh, digital distance sales models for their employees. So there are a lot of organizations that flourished and continue to flourish as a result of COVID-19. 
So I think what it has really, really challenged is organisations' views of how do we take a multidisciplined approach, which was both digital and face-to-face, or the realism of being able to see clients and create that in a world where we can still collaborate internally and we can still collaborate externally, albeit in a virtual world. And of course, we'll transition back to something else in the coming future, whatever that looks like. It's created some challenges, but I think it's also supercharged what I might call some false positives for the technology world. Yeah, that's right. I think that's also the impression that I got. There's a lot of categories that have really profited from COVID-19, and there has been a lot of urgency by buyers to spend money on those kind of technologies. Mm -hmm. And yeah, as you said, it's probably a false positive that might lead to a lot of COVID-19 hangovers when this is over and the markets go back to normal. I think we're seeing a bit of it now already. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think for those companies that have really profited during COVID-19, it's a real challenge to stay on their toes and not to become complacent because I think challenger brands will be ready to uh, eat their breakfast (laughs) if they're not careful. Absolutely. I think there's also been, as you rightfully said, there's been the challenger brands that have now, who have created a truly digital workforce and a truly digital low-friction sales model now, whether or not it's B2C or B2B. But we've also seen the emergence of a truckload of new products and new technologies come into the market. So from a buyer standpoint, optionality is pretty good at the moment. Yeah, that's right. From your perspective, in your leadership positions, heading up sales organizations across Australia, how did you go in the past about designing a sales process that is really effective and continues to improve? Because the ideal case is obviously that you always create a self-process based on the buyer journey. But I think a lot of organizations even struggle with just getting the self-process right, even without considering the buyer journey. So how do you go about developing that self-process? Yeah, well, clearly the sales process has been interrupted a little bit by COVID-19, by the nature of the minimization of person-to-person contact. What I would normally talk about when I think about sales is, if we think about sales as a silo where only the sales organization owns the outcome, I think we're selling ourselves shorts in terms of what sales actually really means. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, the sales is a function for anyone who has leaves a fingerprint or has a, a fingerprint on a consumer experience with your brand. And to that extent, the recently and more commonly used concept of go-to-market is now what I think is more of an apt way to think about selling because Sales is a function of, is one function within the overall go-to-market function. And if we think about the go-to-market function in kind of three areas, we think about it in terms of what we call the attract or the consideration phase. So how do we actually create something that's meaningful to the buyer that you're trying to get to? And in simple terms, we call that marketing. And whatever marketing we put in, whatever campaign structures or channels we use, what you're trying to do is, is create an attraction model where you get someone to start considering your product or your service and then translate that into an acquisition or fulfillment program. And that acquisition and fulfillment program should come across when certain key lead parameters are met or certain lead scores are in place. Then we move into a sales process where we have an architect of more personalized engagement and something that is to try and generate a closure, or as I said, a fulfillment program. And then the last part of our sales process or the go-to-market process is once someone's made a commitment to you, or to your brand, is how do we then support that? How do we care about their commitment to our brand and the products and services we're offering? And how do we optimize that for broader revenue expansion? So when I think about the phases and I think about selling and designing a really great structure, my kind of view is if you have that fragmented approach to selling, meaning that there isn't an integrated flow between attractive consideration, fulfillment, 
or acquisition and then all the way through to support, care and expand, your sales process will be fundamentally doing you a disservice, not a service. And as a sales leader, how can you actually make sure that the sales process improves over time? Because if you take those three phases that you just described, you have marketing on one side, then you've got sales, and then you've got customer success or account management on the other side. And it can be siloed and can be fragmented. Like, How do you make sure this process actually improves over time? I am a believer in metrics. So I think metrics are very important to follow and quantitative data will tell you how well you're doing and what you're not doing. I think agility is a key to improving your sales processes all the time. I, you know, great software companies without naming names that I've been exposed to move very much in a quarter by quarter agility program, both in terms of strategy and also budget and budget investments. So I think the first thing I would do is culturally, I think you've got to have a, an improvement mentality or an agility mentality that says, hey, we're, we're going to look at things like, well, what do territory structures look like quarter on quarter? What do our marketing investments look like quarter on quarter? Because we know we're in a highly volatile market right now that's changing very, very quickly. So as an organization, you have to change with that. There is a people aspect to that. Changing people and changing directions on a very frequent basis is also unsettling. So I think you also have to pick your battles in terms of the priorities of what you want to focus on. And then I also think it's going back to the people aspect that you have a model where you have a really, really strong feedback mechanism coming from those who are in the go-to-market that have a voice around what our strategy looks like and then laying that down and executing it. I think the other aspect of continuous improvement in selling is listening to your customers, listening to the feedback that you get from your customers on the experiences they've had with you. So have a strong ethos around the voice of your customer. And I'm not just talking about NPS and CSAT. I mean, actually having direct feedback channels where customers have a voice into the three phases of their engagement with you. I also think the improvement that has to be considered today in a world where we are creating a distance engagement economy is, is how do we invest in technology and how do we use technology, particularly AI, particularly machine learning, to help augment the decisions we make around where we market, where we don't market, what's the information is important, how do we create channels of, of open, democratized data to our customers from our systems. So technology investment plays a huge role in that as well. If you are a regular listener of the State of Sales Enablement podcast, chances are that you enjoy learning about strategic sales enablement as much as I do. Sales Enablement Live is a weekly live stream where we do deep dives and Q&As on sales enablement topics like buyer journey mapping, sales technology, coaching, sales content, and more. If you want to be part of the conversation and receive notifications about upcoming sessions, please make sure to register on thestateofsalesenablement.com. That's thestateofsalesenablement.com. Join the conversation every Wednesday, 12 p.m. Australian Eastern Time, which is Tuesday, 5 p.m. Pacific Time. I'm looking forward to catching up with you on Sales Enablement Live. You've worked for big American brands over here in Australia. And I think one of the dynamics that are always a talking point here in Australia is the differences between the U.S. and the Australian market and the way headquarters support their local offices overseas. From your point of view, what are the key differences you have observed in the past in the way U.S. buyers interact with sales teams versus Australian buyers? Yeah, it's a great question and one I haven't been asked for a very long time. And I think that it's a really relevant question for those who are either currently or looking at taking sales leadership roles, whatever those titles might be, working for U.S.-centric software companies. First thing I'd say is Australia as a market on a global scale is a very, very small market. So U.S. companies are less likely to create 
localized investment strategies for marketing and content and content development for the Australian market. Because frankly, on a global scale, it might be contributing one or two or 3% of the overall revenue for most of those companies. So the effort versus return is a challenge straight away. One thing that I guess I've learned from working for US-centric software companies is they are brilliant marketers. They are brilliant content developers. But that's not always fit for purpose for the Australian market because the two major differences I see in the buyer personas between, and I'm being generic here, so for those listeners who might be thinking about the verticals of the industries or the segments they play in, they might want to debate this. But holistically, from a generic perspective, the personas are different for our buyers in Australia. We have quite a cynical buyer in Australia. (laughs) And the US market is much larger. And as a result, what you tend to find, and I spent a lot of time in the US and, and working with US sales leaders as well, is most US buyers start from a position of, how can you help me? How are you going to make my business more productive, more efficient? How are you going to help me sell more? For whatever reason, whether or not it's our colonial past, I'm not sure. Most Australians start from a position of mistrust. And so when we're selling or we're having conversations, the way we break through that is a lot more complex than an American style of engagement or a North American style, which is how do you help me? Because the US is a deeply competitive market. It's big. There's a lot of competitors. So people are always looking for the competitive edge. We're a small market with usually in each industry, a small set of dominant players. And so as a result, you've got to work really, really hard to get them to the attitude of how you help me. I think the other aspect of the Australian sector that I think is interesting is we are pooled up under APAC normally, under an Asia-Pacific or APJ, depending on which companies you're working for. And I don't think there could be a more diverse region from the subcontinent of Sri Lanka, India, Pakistan, through the, the southern seaboard of Vietnam, Cambodia, Indonesia, then up through the northern eastern component going up into Japan, uh, South Korea and China. It's so vastly different. And so often Australia also gets pulled in this really, really complex environment. And it's hard for all of those countries to stand out and show the independence of the nuances of their buyers. So that, again, also is equally challenging because content's created for APAC or APJ. And so in that instance, I think what I would say is have a voice around the structure of how you want to build some localization and resources. I've seen firsthand when we've been able to have control of how we market and drive brand and own brand locally to then have that taken away and then centralized from a US centricity perspective and what impact it actually has on revenue and particularly inbound lead generation. So yeah, it's a tricky one. But again, when you're a small subset of total revenue, it's hard to have a big voice sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Especially, I think you see that with companies that are not as well resourced as the big, big corporates Mm -hmm. over here, especially in the ad tech and martech space, you might have a sales office, so to speak, set up here with a handful of salespeople. And then if they're lucky, a marketer. So there's not a lot of headspace or resource available to create localized content. So I think that ability to effectively collaborate with those well-resourced overseas offices is really crucial in making that go-to-market in Australia successful, especially from a content perspective. Yeah. And I think if I was to provide some distinct guidance around if you can get some elements of control or some investment around how you want to manage that MarTech or how you want to manage your brand. What works very well in Australia is good, positive PR. One of the things if you're trying to drive brand into the sector down here is if you can get 
there's the old saying, you know, what's the difference between spending a million dollars on advertising or a million dollars on PR? The answer is a million dollars. So what I've seen really effective is when you're building a brand or you're an early entrance brand or you're a challenger brand trying to come into this sector with the challenges of the personas being somewhat cynical and untrusting as to what you're really trying to do, good positive PR in the channels where your buyers are, whether or not it's in digital news or whether or not it's in physical news or whether or not it's in publications that get out there, they are very, very powerful ways to build brand and intent and to break through that barrier of uncertainty that the persona you're trying to get to in the Australian market may have around your intent. Absolutely. Now, from a technology point of view, the sales tech space is absolutely exploding. There's new tools popping up left, right, and center. And I think a lot of sales leaders should be excused if they feel overwhelmed by all the opportunities and possibilities that are out there. What would your advice be to leaders of sales organizations in their journey of building their tech stack? And what are the considerations they should make to make sure that the tech truly adds value to their sales process? Yeah, you're right. It's like the ice cream truck with 101 flavors. What do you want? I think it goes back to strategy and I think it goes back to planning. And more importantly, I think technology is a servant of your strategy. It's not your strategy. Now, whilst technology companies, and I've sat on 20 odd years in software vendors, will tell you that they embed best practice and they embed all these things into their product. That is true, but the uniqueness of your business is how you do things and how you can orchestrate technology to meet your strategy and your plan. So how do you do that? How do you not get caught in the uh, ice cream truck situation where you end up with 20 flavors on, on one ice cream cone? You actually do need to kind of look at things. And I think about things in three layers. I think the guiding principle for all investments from a sales standpoint should be your consumer journey. So who is your persona and, and how have you mapped or how are you looking at the consumer map of how your customer is going to engage with you? And once you've defined that, there's then what I'd call the, the service design or the process design component that sits under that. And that's kind of broken into two areas. There is actually the actual architectural design of the process, but then there's the data integration piece. So what data is required at each core part of that journey to solve the best outcome for both your customer and the employee when they're engaging in that. Once you actually have that map and the process design or the service design architected, designed, I've used design a lot, you then need to look at your either legacy infrastructure or your legacy application environment and what is going to serve that best and where are the gaps then retrofit what you need from a technology standpoint. What I see a lot of organizations do is just buy point solutions to solve a point problem. And in actual fact, what they're actually doing is segregating data out. They're actually isolating data. They're creating separate islands of information that aren't integrated. And all of a sudden, the problem you were trying to solve for that one issue is actually creating a whole issue in that customer journey and in that process design piece where the data is not where it needs to be. Things aren't flowing effectively. And so then you, you've actually built in inefficiency and you've, as a result of that, actually created probably a poorer experience for both employee and for your customer. So I think if you follow that strategy is, you know, what is the customer? What is their journey? What does the process look like in that journey? What's the data that's required in that? And then understand what you need to build the best outcome is probably a great way of doing it. I think also in the last point I would make is a consumer journey through marketing, sales, and customer support or success also requires the ability to actually shift data in and out of third-party products. So I think from a technology standpoint, one of the things I'm seeing really, really agile companies be able to do and agile sales companies be able to do is build really, really robust integration platforms to make sure that data is seamlessly moving all the time to where it needs to be to create the best outcome. That's awesome. 
Technology is obviously a key part of the whole sales piece, but people will, at least for now, still remain the core of the sales department and the buyer experience, especially for high-ticket tech products. When you hire salespeople in your roles, what are the traits that you're looking for? And how do you approach coaching during the tenure of the salesperson to make sure that they continue to develop their skills? Yeah. The marketplace at the moment is, you know, there is a labor war on at the moment for labor. And I'm reading a lot about the great resignation cycles that are going on at the moment. From a tech standpoint at the moment, it is very much an employee's marketplace. I probably put that out there because I think hiring at the moment in those markets has kind of changed a lot of things for what you look for. I think there are overinflated salaries when aligned back to competency. I think we're going to have elevated expectations of salaries for some period of time based on experience and skills. So what I'm looking for won't change based on that, but I think you have to adjust your thinking based on the, the challenges in the labor market right now. I always have a great belief is hire for attitude first. Attitude to me is something that's usually ingrained and it is something that is in the DNA of the individual. There's obviously a baseline of competency that's required, but if attitude's great, and competency is at a level it needs to be, you can teach competency or you can guide and grow competency and coach competency. If I think about the elements of those who have been widely successful in sales roles, I think there's a couple of common behavioral traits that I see. The first is, is that they're solution orientated. They have a very inquisitive mind and they can piece lots of moving parts together and come together with a solution or a position. They're also highly collaborative. So they know how to manifest the moving paths within the organization to form the best engagement model with the prospect or the customer they're working with, i.e. how do they work with solution engineers or pre-sales, how do they work with customer success, how do they work with product teams, how do they work with customer support to understand how they get best outcomes from that, how do they work with professional services teams. So they're a really, really collaborative mindset beyond the initial solution and naturally curious and inquisitive mindset. And then the last behavior that I see is as common as it might sound, they're just hard workers. They exhume the most out of every second, out of every hour that they can get. They appreciate the one commodity we all start equal with at the beginning of every day is time. You don't get time back. It's a classic interview, actually, if I go a little bit off track, Felix, between Warren Buffett and Bill Gates, and they were harassed give us your 30-second summary of the number one piece of advice you will give to anyone you ever meet. And despite the fact you may not or may do appreciate Buffett or, or Gates, I'll give you this because I thought it was great. Gates gave a very philanthropic response around giving back and contributing, which is great. And, you know, follow your passions and your desires. And Buffett turned around and said, you know, I've got $100 billion and there's nothing in the world I probably can't acquire or buy. The one thing I can't buy is time. Once it's gone, it's gone. And I think that great salespeople appreciate that that time is the most important commodity and how they use that and how they, they use that with a quality outcome in mind is usually the third and final factor that I think I look for is people who can demonstrate that they're acutely aware of working hard and using time well. Yeah, yeah, I love that. From my perspective, just to add to that, the time dimension, I think also is a huge consideration the way they 
treat their buyers and the way they approach the conversation with buyers, because sales's purpose ultimately is to help buyers to make a purchase decision as quickly as possible, a good purchase decision as quickly as possible. Salespeople who have that mindset and really have that mindset of serving the buyer and also being respectful of their time and allowing them to make a decision as quickly as possible, no matter if it's for or against their brand, just that helping and that consultative approach. I think is something that I see really commonly in high-performing salespeople as well. And you know, Felix, this might be slightly controversial, but I'm, I'm going to throw it out there. I mean, I've, I've heard lots over the last 12 months through to the last 10 years around how difficult it is to potentially get ahead these days in organizations. One thing I would say is that we live in a world now where information is at your fingertips how you promote and drive your brand is vastly different to what it was in my era. When I was growing up, where you made your way through life by actually going and seeing people because there was no LinkedIn. There was no way of, of managing your brand in the digital sphere. And frankly, to get ahead meant you had to be out in front of people all the time managing your brand face-to-face. And customers all bought face-to-face. I mean, email, believe it or not, was the only real digital engagement piece we had for a long period of time. So you had to build your way that way. I think today, what I would say is, and this is the controversial piece, I see more and more salespeople working less and less hard and relying on a whole series of digital engagements to help them along versus actually putting in the hard yards of working, putting the hours in, calling people on the phone, having meetings, having conversations and getting out there. And information is at your fingertips around your customers. Annual reports are online. There are a million pieces of data now that you can get where you can build a great reason to have a conversation and a great reason to be relevant and prevalent Mm. in a conversation. One thing hasn't changed with buyers. Buyers don't want you to come and solve the problems they're telling you. They actually want you to solve the problems they don't know they have. Yeah, That's one of the big differences between using information at your fingertips as well. And it's a great way to open conversations. And it may not be that first conversation that gets you in the door, but if you take an angle where you've worked something out that can fix something for them that's really, really relevant, and you can show the tangible benefits of that, you're more likely to be remembered and probably more likely to be spoken to. So for me, the, the stand out now as a salesperson actually isn't as hard as it used to be. It's actually quite easy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think it's just, a, as you said, a mindset shift. I mean, just to provide a view behind the scenes of my business as well, like in our sales activity, we always see that digital channels are actually complementary to real-world activity. So it's always real-world activity that builds the relationship, and then you use digital engagement channels to amplify it and to provide further value. Correct. But I think you can't replace the two. If you engage people online as a first engagement touch point, you're still the random person from the internet, right? (laughs) And especially in the Australian market, a small market where a lot of people know each other, it's worthwhile still considering the real-world activity as being the basis for sales. The stats that I remember were... Assuming you've followed the appropriate GDPR rules and you're emailing people appropriately where they're opt-in, I think it's roughly about a 20 to 23% open rate on an email and 2 to 3% response rate. Yeah, exactly. There you go. But I think if you look at the stats and the research, I mean, it's not Australia-specific, but Gartner has recently released uh, research features that stated that 44% of millennial decision makers would prefer a sales experience or a buying experience without any sales interaction. But then on top of that, you see that the buyer remorse is then 25% higher compared to those that would like an interaction with a salesperson. So I think that should definitely be food for thought for a lot of organizations. 
with the mindset buyers go into the conversation, but um, how you then also make sure if they end up purchasing, how they end up having a good experience. So I think buyer interaction is that still being able to add value as a salesperson is a big challenge. And I think that probably also feeds into the skill set discussion. Yeah. And a lot of that, a lot of that upfront consideration phase where the millennial buyer is doing very little interaction directly with the salesperson is because the great amount of information that's available to them to actually, and the way that some really, really good soft companies, and I will mention one and we're aligned with them, but I think they're from a SaaS B2B perspective, probably the best sales organization and customer focus organization I've come across, which is HubSpot. Being in the HubSpot tent as a partner now, I've been exposed to you know firsthand the, the way they run and do what they do and the amount of empowerment they put up front to their customers when they're going through the consideration phase is second to none in the market. And it allows the customer, as you said, to self-orientate through a process of due diligence. And then at the appropriate time, only then does uh, through however HubSpot runs their, their engagement and lead scoring transition to an SQL, a sales qualified lead, does a salesperson get engaged? And usually once that engagement happens, the customer actually is in the mindset to want to speak and talk. No, absolutely. I think if you consider that the cells aren't an information source anymore, they're not really needed to then implement the transaction. Like a lot of times you can purchase online. I think the question then to a lot of organizations is what skill set is needed for sales still to add value and where you get those skill sets from. From my point of view, certainly the answer is that there's a more consultative skill set required to really analyze and understand the buyer's problems. As you said earlier, curate the content that makes sense of the problem the buyer is trying to tackle and the solutions that are out there and so on. I think in terms of sales skill set, it is for a lot of organizations worthwhile considering where they get their sales talent from and what sort of backgrounds they have. Correct. Because I think the previous sources of talent probably won't be relevant for much longer anymore. And there's still technology product sets out there that still require deep industry knowledge. I've been supporting a health tech organization, launched their business into the US, very, very prevalent in Japan, in parts of Europe and Australia. And one of the big aspects of their product, it cannot be self-orientated because it's super complex. So there's always going to be a need for people who have domain expertise or industry expertise to help an organization or a buyer through a cycle of due diligence. And again, that's where I think you'll see products will become less and less frictionless or low friction in terms of its acquisition cycle. But then there's still going to be complex products, full ERP transformation programs. We were talking about the whole go-to-market structure between a marketing sales and service and support. They're always going to require some level of input and best practice. And I think that's the knowledge that someone who, who's working with a customer only has their own internal lens. That's the other value of a solution-orientated salesperson who can bring value to the conversation because they potentially are sitting across hundreds of other customers who have been through similar transformation journeys and they can add value to the conversation. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I always like to end the conversations by asking my guests for advice for people who might start occupying roles similar to the kind of roles that you've had experience in. What would your advice be to the next generation of commercial leaders in the Australian markets, possibly working for American companies in Australia, to interact with their head offices and to leverage those vast resources overseas as best as possible for the Australian market? Yeah, that's a big question, Felix. First piece of advice I would give is help best you can educate the subtle differences between our buyers. 
in region here. Because I do think that sometimes the manner of which we adopt either sales processes or even sales content and marketing content from the US can often be a deterrent for some of our buyers to want to engage with us because it feels a little disingenuous and it feels that it perhaps has not been managed well for the Australian buyer. So I think just helping educate what is the mandatory requirements and potentially what I'd call the non-negotiable things that you need to do to derive an outcome. The other aspect of this is that I think local knowledge and local experience is really, really important when building your teams. And so despite sometimes the great skills that might come in when we bring resources from offshore into Australia to run our Australian businesses, I think it's important that we do leverage local knowledge and local experiences when building your teams. I think that will give you an easier path to getting access to your buyers. The other aspect that I didn't speak about before is, in my experience, Australia is always, in terms of its contribution to an APAC number, has always batted well above its average. And in my experience, Australia has always been probably the, if not the largest, but the second largest contributor of revenue, usually in APAC. And so the other thing I'd say is if you have the runs on the board and the, or you can show the addressable market, that should also be used to help leverage getting more investment. Even though on a global scale, we might be a small contributor to revenue, in a regional area, you're usually one of the largest contributors. So use that to your advantage. The other thing is also learn off what they're doing in the US because they do do some amazing, amazing things over there. Leverage some of the success stories that come out of the US and localize them for the right messaging into the buyers or the channels that you're trying to get into. I think my last piece of advice is try and sell in AUD, not in USD. (laughs) Makes it a lot easier. That's right. Avoids that awkward moment when buyers realize they have to pay you in USD. <laughs> the currency conversion can often uh, destabilize a conversation very quickly. That's right. On that note, Rod, thank you so much for joining today. If people want to connect with you and continue the conversation, where can they find you online? LinkedIn. People can find me there. Um, Rodney Moynihan, M-O-Y-N-I-H-A-N. My email address is rmoynihan at bacpartners.com.au. And I won't give a mobile. Don't need people randomly ringing me in the middle of the night. But if you want to reach out, by all means, we can exchange mobile numbers after that. Awesome. Thank you so much, Rod. My pleasure, Felix. Thanks for having me along. You've been listening to the State of Sales Enablement podcast. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe in your favorite podcast player. If you want to learn more about sales enablement, you'll find a growing number of articles, videos, and templates specifically for enterprise technology businesses at krugermarketing.com learn. That's K-R-U-E-G-E-R marketing.com learn.